Hi, I'm Ariane Nettles, journalist and professor at Northwestern University. In 1893, legendary activist and journalist Ida B. Wells came to Chicago on a mission. The World's Fair was happening that summer. Millions of people were expected to visit, and anybody with a product to sell, a constituency to celebrate, or a message to promote wanted to be there. Prominent African-American leaders applied for space to celebrate their achievements since the end of slavery, but the fair planners denied them. So Wells traveled here to speak out. She was working with well-established Black leaders like Frederick Douglass. Back then, pamphlets were a key tool in political protests and campaigns. Their pamphlet argued that Black Americans' work be recognized. In Wells' words, They have contributed a large share to American prosperity and civilization. The labor of one half of this country has always been and is still being done by them. But there was a problem. They didn't have the money to print the pamphlet. Frederick Douglass had said he was going to get the funding, and he was trying the more traditional way of getting some newspapers to sponsor and all that kind of stuff, and he was having a lot of problems with it. That's Michelle Duster. She's the great-granddaughter of Ida B. Wells. I just think it's funny. She's like, step aside. Let me show you how to do this. Wells went directly to Chicago's Black community, from church to church, asking for money from their women's groups, and she got the money. Anti-lynching crusader, truth-teller, If you know about Ida B. Wells, you likely know about her work in the South. In the 1890s, she risked her life exposing lynchings and publishing her reports in the U.S. and abroad. You might also know her as a co-founder of the NAACP. But Wells spent most of her adult life here in Chicago. It's where she got married, raised a family, and also it's where she developed new strategies to advance the cause of Black equality and Black power. You could even say her efforts helped create a new and stronger Black Chicago, one that was ready to receive the waves of Black migration from America's South to the Second City, including my grandparents, who came to Chicago from Mississippi and who made it big in the growing blues industry of the 1950s. We'll get to my grandparents' story in a bit. But first, on the anniversary of a street being named in her honor, we dive into the story of Ida B. Wells in Chicago. Next. This WBEZ podcast is supported by Hacia, whose executive fellows program provides Black and Latinx business owners with real-world tools and strategies needed to master fundamental management concepts related to company stability and growth. Registrants learn through one-on-one executive coaching sessions with subject matter experts in the areas of finance, business development, operations, and legal. More info at HACIAWorks.org. This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, The Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park restaurants. Tickets available now only at ravinia.org. Learning about the work of Ida B. Wells led one Chicago high schooler to send in a question to Curious City. She wanted to know, what was Ida B. Wells' legacy in Chicago? There's a lot we could talk about. 
She opened the first kindergarten here for Black students. She fought against formalized segregation in Chicago schools. And one of the first issues she worked on was helping support new arrivals from the South. Again, here's Wells' great-granddaughter, Michelle Duster. And the YMCA, the Young Men's Christian Association, did not welcome Black men. So there were all of these men that were coming up here who couldn't find a place to stay. So she decided to do something about it. She started the Negro Fellowship League. It began as a boarding house, but it became so much more. It placed people in jobs and hosted political meetings and social gatherings. Wells was hoping that middle and upper class black Chicagoans would fund the Fellowship League, but she never got enough to keep it running. So she paid for it herself. She got a job as a probation officer during the day and ran the Fellowship League at night. But arguably, her biggest legacy in Chicago is how she built political power among Black people, particularly Black women. In 1913, Wells founded Chicago's first suffrage organization for Black women, the Alpha Suffrage Club. Soon after, women, Black and white, did get the right to vote in Illinois, but it was limited. They could vote in presidential elections and some local elections. But there were some offices, including U.S. senators and representatives, that they couldn't vote for. And while the universal suffrage movement was gaining momentum, not everyone was welcome at the table. There were white women who were very upset that black men had the right to vote, but white women didn't. Annie Logue is president of the League of Women Voters Chicago. She says black women also got resistance from black men. There were some black men who thought that if black women could vote, that would dilute their power, that would make them weaker. She made the point that if black women could vote, that would strengthen the power of the black electorate. So she started organizing and educating black women. In the 1915 election, those women had the opportunity to vote for a black candidate for alderman, Oscar DePriest. There had never been a black alderman. She did an enormous amount of work to get Chicago's first black alderman elected through basic civics education, explaining to people why this local government position was so important, and also just doing the basic nuts and bolts campaigning, you know, knocking on doors, telling people why it mattered, um, and really motivating the electorate. And the work paid off. Oscar DePriest won and became the city's first black alderman. And according to Wells' autobiography, it's because a third of the votes he received were from women. And so, when universal suffrage was finally ratified in 1920, Wells had already showed that black women were a powerful voting bloc. That's true to this day. For the rest of her life, Wells put her time, money, and energy into city politics because she believed Chicago was the place black people could make real gains. As she once wrote, On only one spot on this broad United States have colored citizens demanded anything like adequate political recognition. And that one spot is Chicago. Today, a century later, the work that Wells began continues. Black Chicagoans still suffer from inequitable housing, economic opportunities, and education. But many victories have been realized. For one, Black women now hold the most powerful seats of local government. Cook County State's Attorney Kim Fox. We take for granted where you have, 
you know, an African-American woman mayor, an African-American woman county board president, African-American lieutenant governor, African-American woman state's attorney, that this is the natural order of things. But it has taken a while to get here. Fox is the first black woman to serve as Cook County state's attorney. She points out that for Wells, it was always important that political movements include everybody. She was way ahead of her time. There's a lot of conversation about diversity and inclusion right now. A lot of conversation about intersectionality right now. Ida B. Wells was at the forefront of that, at the absolute forefront of that. So in answer to our question about Wells' legacy in Chicago, there are many. Perhaps most notably, though, she empowered and mobilized Black people, and especially Black women, to claim political power. But for decades, a now-demolished Bronzeville housing project was the only major city landmark to bear her name. In February 2019, that changed. Congress Parkway was renamed Ida B. Wells Drive, making Wells the first Black woman to have a downtown Chicago street named in her honor. The sign-unveiling ceremony was emotional. I was there. And as the room started to sing the Black National Anthem, Lift Every Voice and Sing, I could feel the weight of this monumental moment. And now, to Fox and many others, Ida B. Wells finally has the kind of commemoration she deserves. In all of the legacy that she has laid around representation and voice and truth-telling, there is something tremendously powerful about driving into the Central Business District and seeing her name. One of the families that followed Ida B. Wells to Chicago was mine, my grandparents. We'll hear their story and their impact on the blues scene here next. This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark. Learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. WBEZ is supported by Chicago Humanities, presenting live events with historians Doris Kearns Goodwin and John Meacham, comedian Reggie Watts and filmmaker Miranda July, and artists Hebrew Brantley and Amanda Williams in conversation, plus MSNBC chief correspondent Ali Velshi on small yet powerful acts of courage throughout history. Tickets for these events and more conversations on arts, culture, and current affairs at chicagohumanities.org. In the 20th century, millions of Black Americans who lived in southern states packed up their lives and headed north to cities like Chicago. They were drawn by the promise of greater freedom and better jobs. And like a lot of Black Chicagoans, my granddaddy Narvell and my grandma B were among those who left Mississippi in the 1940s and headed north. When they got here, they found success in a particular industry of the time, the blues. So when Curious City listener Charlie Davis asks the question, 
What role did the Great Migration play in establishing the blues industry in Chicago? I decided to trace the history of my grandparents' experience with the blues. Because if you understand their story, that'll help you understand why the music took root here and flourished. I already knew they owned a lounge on Chicago's South Side in the 1950s and a record label for decades after. But I was still surprised when I picked up a book on Chicago blues and found my granddaddy's name right smack in the middle. Your grandpa was a hustler. He, he wasn't a hoodlum. He, he wasn't a gangster. No, but he was a hustler. He was out there making that money. And that was the name of the game. More about my granddaddy's hustle later. Most people know that black people migrating to Chicago brought the blues with them. But Chicago had three things that made it the perfect place to start a blues business. First, by the middle of the 20th century, there was already a large community of working black folks. This was especially true in the Black Belt on the South Side, where a majority of the city's black residents lived at the time, my family included. World War II had just ended, and in Chicago, the black community, many of whom had just arrived, laid the groundwork for what would become a booming blues industry. Here's David Whitus, author of Chicago Blues, Portraits and Stories. It was a major urban center. There were opportunities to open a club or a lounge or a bar. My granddaddy had just gotten out of the Army, and he'd always had entrepreneurial dreams. So when he got to Chicago, he could own a club because there were a lot of people in Chicago who had the money to support his business. That kind of success here, while still hard to achieve, was possible because the black people who came here still wanted to hear the blues. This migration, what Al Bell from Stax Records always affectionately called Mississippi River culture, he says, anywhere there's Mississippi River culture, they like the blues and they like deep soul music. My grandparents came from that Mississippi River culture, and they were immersed in the music that spoke about oppression and the hard life of sharecropping. My aunt, Mary Brooks, says she remembers how my grandma B would always say she left Mississippi because she was just sick and tired of picking cotton. And the reason many people left Mississippi and Alabama and everywhere is because they were tired of the circumstances there. They were tired of being boys and girls, and they wanted to be men and women. So yeah, they came north, and they brought the blues with them. And the second reason Chicago was primed for the blues, there was already a recording industry set up here. Chess Records started in 1950, and they recorded Howlin' Wolf, Muddy Waters, and other Chicago blues artists. But Chess's owners were here before that, already a part of Chicago's music industry. And entrepreneurs like my granddaddy recognized that too. They formed many smaller but very important record labels that added to the city's robust industry. So if you were a blues musician, Chicago is where the work was. And reason number three is Chicago already had a thriving nightlife. With its history of the mafia, prohibition, and, well, paying folks to look the other way, the city was already primed for the blues industry to also grow into a nightlife ecosystem. We had loose liquor laws. We had mayors who allowed their police officers to take bribes and let the clubs open all night. We had mayors that really permitted vast areas of the South Side to be basically centers for vice. 
And as the black belt quickly filled with musicians and workers with a little money to blow, it was the perfect setup to create clubs and lounges that hosted performers and catered to guests. It was the perfect setup to put on a show. In my family, we were right in the middle of all the action. My granddaddy had the nickname Cadillac Baby, Aunt Mary again. He was a showman. So, you know, he had to be a showman to, to dress up every Saturday night in a top hat and a tuxedo. Woman, you know that I love you. As a 10-year-old in the 1950s, my aunt was old enough to remember my granddaddy's larger-than-life persona and what it was like in our family's club. Her and her sisters would sneak downstairs at night to take a peek at all the action. The performers, the people dancing, the shows. Just like people, the kids are rapping now, we knew the words to these songs because these were the songs we heard and this was the expression of who we were. He gonna make all you women jump and shout. Night after night, this was the scene at Cadillac Baby Show Lounge, named after my granddaddy, who was the colorful face of the business. At some point in the evening, he would drive his Cadillac right up onto the stage and get out of the car and bow to the audience, and that was the start of the show. It was quite a flamboyant entrance, and he was a very flamboyant character. I'm your horse who love you the most. Cadillac Baby, coming to you live from the bandstand of Cadillac Baby's show lounge. He loved it. He loved the notoriety. Located at 4708 South Devon Street. And my grandma B worked diligently behind the scenes to make sure everything ran smoothly. Everybody loved him. Everybody loved B and Cadillac. Whitus, the author, says the blues industry was blossoming with black entrepreneurs making money like my grandparents. And after starting their club, they started a recording company, B and Baby Records, with my grandfather at the helm. Over the course of his career, he recorded quite a few Chicago blues artists who later became quite well known. They recorded artists like Little Mac, Hound Dog Taylor, Homesick James, and Eddie Boyd. By the 1970s, tastes were changing. Some black clubs were closing. My grandparents lost their club. Some younger black listeners saw the blues as representing the past. Meanwhile, white audiences were introduced to the genre through the music of groups like Cream and the Rolling Stones. Today, you can still find blues in Chicago, but some things have changed. There are clubs on the south side and the west side, but very few, not like it was in the 60s. Taranzo Cannon. He's one of the younger musicians in today's Chicago blues scene. He says these days, there's a clear divide. Those places which cater to black patrons and on the north side. You have what they would call your touristy blues clubs. And you get a lot of people from Europe, get a lot of uh, white people to go to these clubs. But there are still black musicians keeping the tradition alive with one important message. We're still here. It doesn't just stop it, or B.B. King, or Muddy Waters, or Buddy Guy, you know. We, we're still holding on to the, to the traditions as we know it. Special thanks to Jill Hopkins, who was the voice of Ida B. Wells. 
Curious City is supported by the Conant Family Foundation and is produced by Jason Mark and Joe DeSoe. Adriana cardona McGigod is Curious City's reporter. Maggie Civit is the digital and engagement producer. J.P. Swenson is our luminary fellow. And Joanna Soren is our editor. I'm Ariane Nettles. The woman I love She committed a crime Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.